0: Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm Dan Pfeiffer. On today's pod, I talked to one of the Obama campaign's most legendary organizers, Paul Tooze, about the 2020 election and how you can make a difference. Uh, Dan, you should see Paul's beard. He looks like Santa Claus. <laughs> it is outrageous.
1: Is that? Um, before uh, that. Is that pandemic related or is he did he, happen, did he happen to have that beard in a pandemic happen to happen?
0: You know, with twos, it could be either. You don't know. Before that, we'll talk about how the president marked 100,000 American deaths from coronavirus with a deranged Twitter meltdown, and Joe Biden's first public appearance and interview outside of his home since the pandemic began. But first, be sure to check out Pod Save the World this week. Tommy and Ben explain how China is trying to crush dissent in Hong Kong and how the Trump administration is increasing the risk of nuclear war by walking away from decades old bipartisan arms control agreements. Also check out Dan's latest good and bad 2020 ads video. This time with special guest, David Pluff. This is exciting.
1: Yeah, it was great. As usual, Pluff was super smart. We broke down a ad from the Biden Super PAC, an ad from the Trump campaign, and the much requested Lincoln Project ad, Morning in America.
0: All right, so everyone go check that out on YouTube.com slash Crooked Media. Finally, if you haven't adopted a swing state, what are you waiting for? Dan, would you like to make a pitch for your adopted state of North Carolina since Lovett and Tommy and I all did ours on Tuesday's pod? And you've had some complaints about that, that, that North Carolina was not giving a fair hearing on that pod.
1: Look, my complaints about this date back before that podcast. You may remember oh, oh, wow. you had a, po- a little podcast called The Wilderness. I did. I Which did. was very focused on Arizona, Wisconsin, Michigan. You even went to Florida, if I recall correctly. Yet you ignored
0: Dan, I only had money for four focus groups.
1: <laughs> yeah, and you and I and with and you made choices. And those choices included ignoring choices. the state of North Carolina. Not only have I adopted North Carolina, it is a Pfeiffer family project. Because wow. in 2008, Hallie Pfeiffer was an organizer in North Carolina when Barack Obama won the state and turned it blue for the first time in a very long time. Here is why I think people should pick North Carolina. Look, adopt any state. We, want, we, will, we will take whatever states get us to 270. But here is why North Carolina is important. It's a three-first state. It is a, it is a state where you can defeat Donald Trump, elect Cal Cunningham, and rip the gavel from Mitch McConnell's ghoulish clause, and- flip the state legislature towards the Democrats. Reason number two, the Google North Carolina Republicans. Mm. They make the folks in Wisconsin look like the Lincoln Project. They are on the (laughs) forefront of rigging democracy and stealing elections. And these people should be nowhere near power. And so we have to do that. And this is a state that I think maybe most importantly on Above all of the reasons, except the one that Hallie used to work there, is that this is a state that is entirely about mobilization. There are more than enough unregistered Democratic voters in North Carolina to win the election. So, if there are sufficient volunteers, sufficient activism, we can win this state. That is the, the path Obama used in 2008. We can win it again. And so, join Team North Carolina. You have me, you have Elijah, you have Shaniqua, you have Yale. We have a core group of the best content creators and staff at Crooked, and it's going to be an uphill climb. We don't get enough attention. There's a lot of focus on Florida, and everyone loves Wisconsin, and Arizona was hipster like four months ago, but now it's super mainstream. And so if you want to be on the leading edge of the new emerging Democratic majority in this country, you're going to be on the team North Carolina.
0: Look, I think you made a lot of compelling arguments there, but none more so than join Team North Carolina because of the content creation.
1: <laughs> uh, you know what? We live we live in a meme and video world and when and and have you, see, have you seen the videos that Elijah's already have, Yeah, if you guys one? follow
0: Elijah on Twitter, you will uh, he's really been spending most of his workday <laughs> making, making... Defeating Donald Defeating Trump? Donald Are you going to dock his pay? <laughs> um, but also, look, if you want to uh, flip the state that once made uh, Joe Arpaio uh, sheriff,
1: you know, come join Team Arizona. That's my pitch. Hey, look, I'm not against winning Arizona. No, I'm, I'm not against I'm winning
0: not. North Carolina. <laughs> but I would like people on my team. And in fact... Uh, you know, many, many, let's just say many people are saying that many volunteers have signed up for Team Arizona. Anyway.
1: Have the Arizona Democratic Establishment rushed to team?
0: Look, uh, uh, Kirsten Cinema, Mark Kelly, if you're out there, uh, I'm pretty thirsty on Twitter. I'm trying to get you guys to tweet about this. <laughs> Haven't heard anything yet. So uh, that's OK. That's OK. This is a grassroots. It's, is, a, it's a marathon. This not is a sprint. grassroots okay. movement. Um. All right. Anyway, go to votesaveamerica.com slash adopt. Pick a state. <laughs> And we will send you specific calls to action that you can do right from your couch between now and November. It is super important. This is what you can do to help win this election. All right, let's get to the news. Um, as of Wednesday, just over three months into this pandemic, more than 100,000 Americans have died from COVID-19. Easily one of the worst tragedies our country has ever endured. Um, we have already lost more people to COVID than we did in Vietnam, the Persian Gulf, Iraq and Afghanistan combined is stunning. Um, Many media outlets and elected officials from both parties uh, marked the grim milestone in some way. Yesterday, uh, on Wednesday, here's a video clip from former Vice President Joe Biden. There are moments in our history so grim, so heartrending, that they are forever fixed in each of our hearts a shared grief.
2: Today is one of those moments 100,000 lives
0: have now been lost to this virus. To all of you who are hurting so badly, I'm so sorry for your loss. This nation grieves with you. Take some solace from the fact we all grieve with you. So uh, we don't have a Trump clip because uh, he didn't say a word on Wednesday about the fact that 100,000 Americans have died. Uh, Instead, He played golf over the weekend, falsely accused Joe Scarborough of murder, falsely accused Barack Obama of spying on him, falsely accused Democrats of trying to steal the election, falsely claimed that vote by mail is fraudulent, falsely accused Twitter of interfering in the election because they fact-checked his claim about vote by mail, retweeted some truly vile insults about Nancy Pelosi, Stacey Abrams, and Hillary Clinton, celebrated the news that the Atlantic is laying off 20% of its staff and that the Dow hit 25,000. And this morning on Thursday, he shared a tweet where a Republican County commissioner in New Mexico said, quote, the only good Democrat is a dead Democrat. Uh, so Dan, do you think that the president has struck the right tone for the moment?
1: <laughs> I, I, know, I know people I mean, like, like to analyze tone. We're laughing. Tone. <laughs> yeah, yes, the op- I will say this to you right now, John, the optics are not good. The optics are not good, Dan. <laughs> like you read that completely insane list of things and your choices are laughing and crying and it is just stunning and it's but there are two things that are stunning at the same time and i think they're s- the scale of the the challenges are such that they're hard to actually grapple with in a real way which is one, you went through the numbers that 100,000 Americans have died in a few months. And at the exact same time that that national tragedy and a preventable national tragedy happened, the person who is our president is someone who not for one second has seemed to think about the scale of that tragedy, has tried to heal the nation, has wrestled with the idea that some of the decisions he made or did not make contributed to that he has only sought to elude blame for the problem that he allowed to happen. And for everything else we talk about in this election and health care and taxes and civil rights and all the other important issues on the ballot, what ultimately it comes down to is presidents are the head of state of this country and we are going to face tragedies again. And we should just be very, very clear that it is highly likely based on the history of pandemics like this and the pace at which vaccines are usually developed, that the person who was sworn in in January of 2021 will be present at a time which coronavirus still exists. You can either have someone who had a message like the one Joe Biden had, who clearly, in a heart-wrenching and raw way, was dealing with what is actually happening in this country. And you have someone who, as opposed to trying to solve the problem, is simply trying to distract people from the problem.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I found Biden's video moving and powerful, um, not just because of the particular words or Biden himself, but I, I i guess I hadn't realized how much, just as an American, I wanted a leader to talk to us during a difficult time. And in the past, every time the country's been through a tragedy, whether you agreed with the president in power or not, whether you're from the same party or not, um, you could want that person out of office immediately. But at the very least, the president would step up and speak to the nation and comfort the nation and offer some solace and remind us that we are one country and that we have more in common um, than than that which divides us. And um, it was, you know, the, the first thing to be really sad about is obviously 100,000 Americans dying and sort of a second order thing is just the fact that we've lost this sort of sense of national leadership that sort of brings us together as a country during these really difficult times. Um, And, you know, it makes you pretty enraged that we have a president like this. Um, Why do you think he seems even more unhinged than usual? Or or I guess I should say, do you think he seems even more unhinged than usual? I mean, even some of his right-wing media pals... At the Washington Examiner, the Wall Street Journal editorial board criticized the Scarborough thing. The idea that in the midst of all this, he's been on this like multi-day rampage spreading some deranged conspiracy theory about a cable news host um, that just has no basis in reality whatsoever. And he just won't give it up. Like what is going on
1: with him? I think just to be so people have the information they need, we should explain why the Scarborough conspiracy theory is false and what the facts are, which is that when Joe Scarborough was serving in Congress many years ago, he had a 28-year-old intern who died in the office from a head injury. The medical examiner determined that the woman passed out and hit her head due to an undiagnosed heart condition. The law law enforcement accepted that explanation. Uh, The family accepted that explanation. And we've moved on. This has been a conspiracy theory that has been swirling on the nether regions of the internet for a long time. And Donald Trump, because he saw it in his political interest or to deal with the grievance of being criticized for his performance as president, decided to use the presidential bully pulpit to communicate this to millions of people without any regard for the family of the woman who passed away.
0: I just, I mean, I'm glad. I'm glad. Thank you for, you know, providing all the facts about that. So people know, but it's just like, Again, it is, you know, from the day that Donald Trump started running for president until maybe the outbreak of the pandemic, we talk about these little, these tangents, these crazy conspiracy theories um, of Trump's, you know, every time we have a podcast. Now, as we're sitting here looking at the fact that 100,000 Americans have died over the last three months, it just seems even more bizarre and deranged that he continues to talk about this shit while the nation is going through one of its worst crises in history. I do understand from the Trump campaigns, just from a pure political perspective, they have decided we want to pretend the pandemic doesn't exist anymore. We don't want to talk about it because it's not helping Donald Trump, because people think that he fucked it up. We want to focus on reopening and the economy, and Trump's going to be the leader of the recovery, blah, blah, blah. But they can't even even focus on that message because every day... He just goes off on 10 other tangents on Twitter like I just, you know, like I just recited. And I'm just – I guess he's just incapable of a message. Is he just extra angry? Like I don't understand it.
1: Yeah, I look, I think the behavior is the same, but the backdrop has changed. Right. Right. This and has not so, changed like,
0: him in any way. This crisis has literally not changed him a bit.
1: If we were to go back and read – the outlines of Pod Save America Pods for the last three and a half years, a large number of them begin with some period of Trump insanity on Twitter, right? A rainy weekend where you guys had to go through all the tweets that he sent when he wasn't golfing, his like, you know, on a Monday pod, him going crazy and us talking about like this happens all the time. But it feels different when you have 40 million Americans losing their job and 100,000 Americans dead than in normal times. Yeah. Even still, even having said that, I still think as a nation and a political culture and a media culture, we are still way too okay with this. Like, I've, I I try to describe how we go about life in America with a president like this, who is completely deranged, deeply dangerous, without a doubt, one of the worst people in America. He is a just... A horrible individual cares about nothing other than himself, and we, you know, I've, I try to. Just, the best way I could come up to describe it is that we are uncomfortably numb. Like we all know this is bad. We know, you know, put aside the MAGA hat wearing base, the majority of the country, even people who support Trump, are uncomfortable with his behavior. But this, the short term danger of him being president, the long term consequences of the fact that someone like Trump could become president, are like too much for us to wrestle with. So even in a pandemic. You know, this is treated as a news story, but not sort of the cataclysmic event that it, it would move people's opinions about who our president is and what he's doing. I mean,
0: you know, when I woke up and saw him share the tweet about that asshole in New Mexico who said the only good Democrat is a dead Democrat who, you know, and it's, of course, this is all classic Trump. And, and the guy was like, oh, well, I didn't mean that literally. And then he goes on to say, oh, but I would. Uh, give Gretchen Whitmer and and Ralph Northam a choice um, either hanging or, or or firing squad you know so whatever um, but like I saw that I'm like oh this will be the thing that like people will be talking about this this is going to dominate Twitter and then I'm like scrolling I'm reading other news stories and you know people are mentioning it here and there but it's not a big deal and I'm thinking like you know we've we, we went through the tragedy in El Paso um, in right before the midterms in 2018 um, sort of, you know, we saw pipe bombs sent to, to Democratic leaders, violence that was inspired by um, if the perpetrators of violence said they were inspired by some of the things that Trump said. Um, and like we made a bigger deal of it then. And now it's happening again. And we're just like, well, we just got to move on to the next thing. Also, you know, he's signing in an executive order to uh, because he's mad about Twitter and he's going to try to like go after social media companies now. So we have to talk about that, too. I mean, I, I guess the question is like how. What is the most effective message to voters about this kind of behavior? Because there's people like us, and a lot of people listening who pay attention to this and get exercised about this every single day. And there's a lot of Americans, most Americans, who are going about their lives, trying to make sure they're healthy and don't uh, get COVID, trying to make sure that they keep their job or get another job if they've lost theirs, trying to put food on the table. Like, how do we talk about this to people who are going to vote in November.
1: We have to make Trump's actions be about Trump. We have to explain that he that it is a message of Trump first, America last. That at a time in which Americans are dying, people are losing their job. He's not focused on preventing the spread of the pandemic or fixing the economy. He is focused entirely on rewarding himself, getting reelected and punishing his enemies. That he is, is always Trump first, always America last. Which has two benefits. One... It helps create motivation for the behaviors that he's demonstrating because simply etiquette violations or not being a normal president or saying untoward things is not in and of itself a powerful re-election message. What you have to do is you have to demonstrate how it affects people's lives. And we could be doing all these other things, except we have a president who wakes up every day thinking about himself, not thinking about the country. If
0: he... Suddenly becomes a little more disciplined, or at least if his campaign becomes disciplined in the messages that they're putting out there through advertising, do you think it's possible that they can achieve their strategic goal of changing the narrative from the pandemic to sort of this economic recovery? You know, there was a story in Politico about how some Democrats are worried about, you know, um, if we do have this V shaped recovery because, you know, we have massive job losses in the spring massive, you know, contraction of the economy. But then as the economy reopens, you know, maybe we bounce back. And so you have GDP numbers and jobs numbers that seem like they are like the biggest job growth that we've seen, the biggest GDP growth that we've seen, even if it doesn't bring us back anywhere close to where we were when the pandemic hit. But just the numbers themselves and Trump's touting of those numbers would somehow boost his reelection chances. Like, What did you think of that story? And also, do you think that Trump's going to be able to sort of change the narrative um, and change the focus, people's focus over the next four or five months?
1: I mean, as we know, things get flushed down the memory hole very quickly. Now, this is a much, much bigger deal than anything that we've ever put to that test before. This is not a brief government shutdown. This is not even impeachment. Mm -hmm. It is a national crisis, unlike anything we've seen in a century and so, but you know, if we are in a situation where you have a resurgence of the virus in the fall, economy kind of gets shut down, again, that'll that obviously is going to dictate the terms of this. What I think, it, I read that story, and I went into it thinking I should panic, but I adhere to our adage of worrying and not panicking. And so a couple things about it. One, we know from having, worked in the White House for President Obama in 2009, 2010, where we had some months with large job increases Mm -hmm. because of the Recovery Act. And it also happened to fall at the time in which the Commerce Department was hiring census workers, which is a temporary inflation of the jobs numbers. And those numbers did not change people's impressions of the economy at all, because they're looking at it from their personal perspective, right? Despite what you know, either the stock market or some jobs number says you're living the reality of it. And you, the fear and anxiety you have for your family and your job certainly outweighs some headline you may or may not see. And it's certainly in this media environment, it's to be harder to see that. Now, my caveat to that and the reason why I do worry is we know, and as we talked about last week, that the only thing that is propping Trump up is his economic approval rate. That voters give him credit on the economy that we do not believe he deserves in any way, shape or form, because I do not think someone should go on Mount Rushmore for not fucking up Barack Obama's economy until he did fuck it up. Um, But I think the way to like, we can't, we don't know what's going to happen in the fall. We don't know what the number is going to look like. But the way to limit whatever gains he can have is to define right now what economic recovery means to Trump, like who he's trying to help, right? That he is celebrating as his idiot son, Eric Trump did yesterday on the day 100,000 people died, celebrated the Dow Jones getting to 25,000. Right. Right. So that this is about him helping big business corporations, the wealthy and not average everyday people. And so if you can define who Trump is fighting for and who Biden's fighting for, then you will fare better in an environment where Trump has some headlines or information that he can weaponize to make a a case that he is sort of leading some sort of comeback, even if we know that's bullshit.
0: Yeah, I think the central question of the election has to be what kind of recovery do you want? Do you want a recovery that benefits Trump and his friends and Mitch McConnell and his friends? Or do you want a recovery that benefits you? Um, Not only financially, but also uh, keeps you healthy, keeps you healthy, safe and uh, with a job that pays the bills. And that's and that's what that's the case that Biden and the Democrats have to make.
1: Dunkin' cold coffee can be brewed at home in your Keurig coffee maker with Dunkin' cold K-cup pods. Just brew it hot over ice and enjoy flavor that's crafted to serve cold. The home with Dunkin' is where you want to be. All
0: right, let's talk about what Trump's opponent has been up to. Joe Biden made his first public appearance in two months when he visited a veterans park in Delaware for Memorial Day. Biden, his wife Jill, and his staff all wore masks to the wreath laying ceremony. The former vice president, whose late son Beau served in the military, told reporters, quote, never forget the sacrifices that these men and women made. Never, ever forget. Later that day, Trump retweeted Fox pundit Brit Hume mocking Biden for wearing a mask and then said to a reporter, quote, he was standing outside with his wife. Perfect conditions, perfect weather. And so I thought it was very unusual that he had one on. He also shared a tweet this morning that said the image of Biden in a mask, quote, endorses culture of silence, slavery and social death the fuck? Biden, in his first in-person interview since the pandemic began, told CNN's Dana Bash that Trump is an, quote, absolute fool and that his opposition to masks is macho stuff that's costing people's lives. All right. Before we get to the mask issue, what did you think of Biden's decision to leave his home and do a Memorial Day event? Should he do more things like this?
1: I mean, it was it was great to see him out there. I think it Got tremendous amount of attention. It seems like uh, the fact that he had been in his house, or been such a narrative around him being in his house, and that he went out and did it and wore a mask, right? All of that created serious conversation. I think this is where the campaign is headed, which is to try to find things to do that are consistent with the guidelines in Delaware, where Biden lives, and the safety of not just the candidate but the Secret Service, the staff, and everyone who has to travel with a. Presidential nominee, um, and I, you know, I think we will, you know, I don't know any specific plans, but I think we will begin to see some more things like that. But it's going to be limited given the constraints at which he's under. But it obviously will ramp up over time.
0: Yeah, I mean, look, I, and in Delaware, they're starting to um, relax some of the uh, social distancing regulations uh, that they've put in place, some of the restrictions, um, and 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 so has every state at this point. You know, now I think all fifty states have some tentative plans for reopening. I think in Delaware, Governor Carney announced on Tuesday that outdoor gatherings of up to 250 people um, are allowed with precautions, face covering, social distancing, et cetera. Um, So I I do think it's important that, you know, and I'm sure the the Biden team is working on this, but like to figure out, you know, public events that are not in his house um, that are creative in the sense that they show Biden, out on the campaign trail, but also make sure to protect him and the people around him, like you said. Um, All right, let's talk about the masks. So the latest Navigator tracking poll shows that nearly 75% of Americans are in favor of wearing masks, including more than half of Republicans. Two thirds of Americans disapprove of Trump's refusal to wear a mask. And the vast majority of people in both parties want their elected officials to wear masks inside. So Why is Trump trying so hard to make this some kind of polarized culture war? Uh, Is there a strategy here? Is he just being an asshole? Like, what do you think?
1: Hmm. Well, I think probably both. So I think on the asshole front, I think he he just has this natural instinct for trying to find wedge issues like he knows he does better in a period of time of division, like he succeeds through polarization. And so he's trying to create this wedge between people who don't want the virus and scientists and local officials and his voters. It's not really clear. Now, I'm not a political expert on any level, but I'm pretty sure that on a 75-18% issue, you do not want to choose the 18% side. But that's where he is. I think to the extent that there's a strategy, and I think – I always think Trump's decisions are more instinctual than intellectual. Yeah. I think that's probably patently obvious thing to say. And instinctual, maybe giving him too much credit. Um, but is like if you are trying to pretend like the virus either never happened or is not here, right? Is that we like if you believe you need to return to normal to be able to get the economy going and return to your really comfortable forty four percent average approval rating then having people wear masks is a constant reminder of your potentially your failure to prevent the virus from spreading as it did. And so like, I think that's why he naturally does not want people to be wearing masks around him because it reminds perhaps himself of his failure, but also reminds the public of his failure.
0: I thought uh, I was looking for some Trump ally official to actually give an explanation of why he keeps shitting on mask wearing and why this has become a fucking thing on Fox News and all the rest of the um, wackos on the right. Eric Beach, who is the co-chairman of one of Trump's super PACs, said this to the Washington Post, quote, there is this capitulation that Biden seems to have. Believe the science, don't question anything and don't show any leadership. Whereas Trump understands that we should question science and should question data. (laughs) I mean, it, that's it. That's it. Biden, we we are criticizing Biden because he believes in science. And Trump knows what real leadership is not believing in
1: science. Do you think Trump and Eric Beach, whoever he may be, questions gravity? <laughs> <laughs> A real leader
0: says to themselves, is the world really round?
1: <laughs> yes. Great. Got we really President, go to Kyrie, President Kyrie Irving up here. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean,
0: on a sort of the broader culture war sense, which the culture war thing, by the way, gets me annoyed because the way the media portrays it is that everyone is automatically polarized. Everyone is already divided by a culture where everything's left, right, red, blue, blah, blah, blah. They love this. But we're not divided over masks. Republican voters are the only ones divided over whether to wear masks. Democrats are fully supportive. Independents are fully supportive half the Republican Party is fully supportive. You know, the very, very conservative governor of North Dakota made like an emotional plea for people to wear masks. Mike DeWine, governor of Ohio, has been making a plea like there are Republican officials out there. The only people that are divided about this right now are the Republican Party, though, of course, Donald Trump will try to make this an issue where, you know, your allegiance to the Republican Party is dependent on whether you approve or disapprove of masks. But that's the whole point. He tries to polarize these things. We are not naturally divided as a country. We are not naturally polarized as a country. We are polarized because we have a president that tries to polarize us every single day. And there's another party that is not trying to do that, that is actively trying to make sure that we all do something that would protect us. And there are Republican officials who are trying to do that as well. Um, So that's the polarization thing. But You know, Axios had a piece the other day where they said that this is part of a larger strategy. Uh, You know, Trump is out and about. Masks be damned. Watch for plenty more mask-free outings from Trump, hyping the reopening of the economy and avoiding discussions of social distancing and death counts. And watch for a visual contrast between the two party conventions in August. Two sources close to the president say they hope to have a boisterous live crowd. They want to have more people there physically than at the Democratic convention. So you can see what Trump wants to set up for the fall, right? Right. He is the guy who is championing the opening of the economy. He's going to go and have his rallies with his big crowds. He's strong and tough, and he doesn't worry about any virus, and he wants people to just live their lives and be normal and stuff like that. And there's weak, cowardly Joe Biden and the Democrats hiding indoors, doing their virtual events, not doing a rally. They want you to stay home. They don't want you to live their lives. That seems to be what he, the, the contrast he wants to set up for the fall. Um, What do you think about that? Like, can it be effective?
1: (laughs) I mean, can we just stipulate that even if you looked at this as Trump does through his pure self-interest, which we presume is centered around getting reelected, there is no dispute to this. The more people wear masks, the less spread of the virus is. The less spread of the virus there is, the more economic activity. The more economic activity, the faster the economy grows, and the more jobs are created. The more economic growth in jobs, the better chance Trump has of being reelected. Yet he has decided to say, nope, because I think either I look funny in a mask or I'm going to you know be some sort of culture warrior, even though that's complete misuse of the term culture war, media, great job, that he's going to make it more likely that we have a resurgence in the fall, which makes it more likely that he will be defeated. The strategy could have used a little bit of scrutiny from either the Trump campaign or the reporters writing about it because it makes almost no sense, but To the extent that like buried in the absurdity that the Trump campaign has put forward is the idea that they are trying to say Biden is old and frail and not up to the job. Like that is like that is a huge part of the messaging from Trump, his Twitter account, Fox News, which is his Twitter account on TV. And the one way to do that is a contrast of images of Trump in factories or in front of crowds and Biden in a mask, in his basement or whatever else. Like, I don't think the Biden campaign is going to allow that to be the exact contrast, but they're trying to show that Trump is up to the task and that even if you have questions about Trump, Biden is definitely not up to the task of getting the country out of this mess. And they're trying to, which is not bad political strategy, I think it's a tough task, is to flip the crisis on its head and turn it into an asset for Trump as opposed to uh, a weakness.
0: Yeah, and... All I would say is, you know, Republicans want the frame to be, you know, Trump wants everything open. Democrats want everything closed. And then they want to force Democrats to either say, yes, things should be closed because we want to keep people safe or no, we're opening some stuff. But we want to, you know, they want they want the frame to be open, closed. And I think Democrats need to pull it out of that frame and say that Trump wants to do nothing about the crisis except things that help his reelection. That's the only, he has no plan. He has no plan for jobs. He has no plan to stop the spread of the virus. He has no plan to put you back to work. He has no plan to help you in any way. He has one plan, and that plan is to get reelected. Democrats want to keep you safe, keep you healthy, put you back to work, make sure you can pay your bills. We want to do something about this crisis that is both a health crisis and an economic crisis. He doesn't want to do anything. And he has proved that he hasn't done anything yet which is why we're still in the mess that we're in. So I just think it's like, a bu- it's, we can't let it be a frame of their open, where closed, which as you saw from the lazy reporting on this, the media is very, you know, they're willing to like buy into that frame that it's red, blue America, culture war, masks, no masks. You can see how the media is going to eat this up. And I think we're going to have to work harder to sort of pull it out of that frame.
1: I agree with everything you said, except I enough for one addendum, which I think mm-hmm. we should give Trump two plans, get reelected, help his wealthy friends and corporations. Because yeah, I true. think poli- I think the public assumes with some reason that every politician wants to get reelected. So that's not a, that's not yeah. necessarily a deficit. Yeah. But if you can point out the plutocratic economic part of this, I think that also will help.
0: That's right. That's right. But, okay. t- but
1: the point of that is that requires Democrats to also have a plan. A specific plan for real yes which it does I have no doubt that the Biden campaign is working on somewhere but we're gonna it can't plan always beats no plan right and currently we're in a no plan versus no plan world and so we need a plan
0: yeah and and when we say plan you know we don't mean you're like 20 page policy prescription that's on your website somewhere like a plan that every voter or at least every organizer <laughs> can recite to every voter um, easily. So the Trump campaign is also attacking Biden for comments he made at the end of an interview on The Breakfast Club last Friday with Charlemagne the God. He said, quote, If you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump, then you ain't black. Uh, Biden later apologized in a call with black business leaders and told them that he shouldn't have been so, quote, cavalier, saying, quote, I know that the comments have come off like I was taking the African-American vote for granted, but nothing could be further from the truth. I've never, ever done that, and I've earned it every time I've run. Of course... Trump campaign is already running digital ads and selling You Ain't Black t-shirts. Very subtle as usual. Um, Dan, what was your reaction to Biden's comments?
1: You know, as someone who has staffed many, many interviews for political candidates and presidents, I don't think I've ever seen someone make a mistake so close to the finish line. (laughs) <laughs> I, watched the like, I,
0: I woke up and I heard about it on Twitter and I watched the 18-minute interview and I'm like, wait, where is this? Where is this? And then I'm like, they're leaving. They're ending the interview. It's I don't see it. Did someone make a yeah. mistake? And I was like, oh, there it is. There it is at the very end.
1: <laughs> yeah, yes. It was after he said bye, he made the mistake. Uh, and it was very clearly a mistake. It was the obviously the wrong thing to say. I did think as the day went on that you can understand the media ecosystem incentives that cause some politicians to never apologize, mostly Republican politicians. Now, I want a politician, a president, a presidential candidate who is willing to admit they were wrong and to apologize when they cause offense. So I think that's the right thing to do. But I'm sitting there, this happens, or you know, the Trump campaign puts out the T-shirts, everyone is reacting to it, there's a Twitter swirl. You know, The world kind of moves on a little bit, at least in terms of the online conversation about it. And then I'm holding my phone in my hand, and I get nine news alerts that's like, Biden apologizes, Biden apologized, Biden apologizes, Biden apologizes. And, and so you see that somehow we live in a world where Biden gets 100 times more coverage than Trump for saying the wrong thing and apologizing than Trump does for saying the wrong thing and never apologizing, right? And like Biden was right to apologize. It is the morally right thing to do, obviously, and in the medium and long term, the politically right thing to do. But like it is not treated the same way or fairly, and there's a real asymmetry in how these things are covered.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's back to the conversation we've had a million times about like 2016 and how there haven't been many lessons learned (laughs) from 2016 at all. And I think it is a, we, we can yell about it and yell about media coverage, but it's going to be a dynamic that we all have to deal with between now and November that anytime Biden makes a mistake, it will be on somewhat of an equal plane as Trump mistakes that are a thousand times worse. Um, but, you know, this goes to why Trump thinks he can benefit politically from this. Like, I think the Trump people know that he's one of the most racist people to ever hold office. I mean, he's he says racist things 10 times a day. Um, and yet they think this will benefit them politically. Why? What? What? What's their strategy
1: here? You know, I... There's a whole bunch of stories that like behind the curtain stories about the Trump campaign effort to court African-American voters. And they're very in-depth. And I think, in fairness to the reporter, is pretty skeptical of both the efficacy and sincerity of these efforts. But there's, they're putting real resources behind this. Like they have a show on the Trump app that is called Black Voices with Katrina Pearson and others. They – You know, there's a lot of merch. There's, you know, they're putting up signs and storefronts in African-American communities. And so they're putting resources behind it. I think the question is, I think this is true for the vast majority of Republican Party efforts to court black voters, is are they trying to get more African-Americans to vote for them or are they trying to convince white moderates who are uncomfortable with Trump's racism that he's not as racist as they might think? The question isn't the strategy, it's what the target audience is. And, um, and so I think that is, you know, how to analyze this necessarily.
0: I also think they don't necessarily think they can get um, a lot of black voters to cast their ballots for Trump, but they do think that they can get some small percentage of black voters, particularly young black voters who do not have a longtime attachment to the Democratic Party as older black voters do to stay home right yep. which is what they tried to do in 2016 with some success and if you look at the places where we need to win in michigan around detroit in um uh in pennsylvania around philadelphia and in you know a little less so in wisconsin i think um but there are places where they think if they can shave the margin just a little bit that can make the difference and i do you know my issue with biden's comments which he was you know i'm glad he he apologized for is i think for a lot of at least this is what the data shows i think for a lot of older black voters they probably care less about that they do have a long time attachment to the democratic party and they understand that you know of course we're not going to vote for trump and they they have an affection for joe biden but i think there's a lot of young people of color and this is true of young people in general who don't really have an attachment to either party and the reason they don't have they, they they could have very liberal progressive values but the reason that they don't have an attachment to either party is they don't see that anyone has done anything for them to make their life better over the last several years and they're they're worried about their job prospects they're worried about um police brutality and and police violence which we're going to talk about in a second um, they're now worried about how they've been disproportionately impacted by this virus and again They look around and they see no one seems to care. And all these politicians say the same thing around the election time. And yes, Trump's racist. And I get that. But where are the Democrats? Where is Joe Biden? What have they done? And so when you hear Joe Biden say, you know, you ain't black, they think, well, you know why? And this is what Charlemagne said to him. Charlemagne's like, this isn't about Trump. I don't like Trump. I'm wondering, as president, what are you going to do for my community? How many times have politicians shown up in black communities to ask for votes. And then after the election, nothing happens. And we can say that Democrats have been fighting really hard to improve life in black communities. And that the reason that it doesn't happen is because Republicans have obstructed us in Congress, and they've stopped us at every turn and all that kind of stuff. And, and it's all true. But again, when all you see is a bunch of politicians talking, and then you don't see improvement come to your community, over time, you're going to have less of an attachment to that party. And to me, that is and it, and it goes way beyond what biden said and apologize that's that's fine but i think a big challenge in this election i mean you know black turnout went down between obama and hillary and that's somewhat understandable he's the first black president and then already in polls you know joe biden is not receiving the same share of the black vote in polls that hillary clinton did and particularly that's fo- that's concentrated in young voters and and we've talked about this before, in the in the universe of up for grabs voters, they are disproportionately young and disproportionately people of color right now. And you know, I, I think the question is, aside from this gaff, aside from what the Trump campaign's doing, what would Biden not taking black voters for granted actually look like?
1: I mean, I think based on a lot of the people who have been hired by the campaign and, and a lot of things we know, is that this is something I have no reason to believe that they have any plans to take African-American voters for granted, despite what Joe Biden said from the campaign's perspective. It is about organizing in the community with local people now, right? It is about outreach now. It's not waiting till the like the complaint you always hear is that Democratic Party politicians come in, you know, a month before the election and focus on GOTV. It is about doing real organizing right now that is begins with conversations about what needs to be done in the community. And I think that 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 has to be done. Now, that is much more challenging in a pandemic context where you can't go door to door. You can't go to community meetings. It's much harder, but it has to be done. And I think you're exactly right that the Trump campaign's goal is not to get more black voters it's to make sure that joe biden gets fewer black voters and it's yeah. not about the it's not about the margin it's about the aggregate number of total voters and that and if i was in the trump campaign if you look at you know you always want to find sort of the the inefficiency in uh the system that you can exploit right and so if you know that you only have to move a group of voters two points to change change the outcome that is a very efficient way to spend money and yeah. so that is why that is why they are focused on it because if you just you change that number by two or three points in Wisconsin or Michigan or Pennsylvania or north North Carolina, for example, you're gonna win as opposed to losing and you know we have to be very wary of that and we can but you know not just Joe Biden but the entire party can take nothing for granted and we have to be and it is not enough to just yell that Donald Trump is racist. We've actually seen research that shows that that is. The, one of the least persuasive arguments with African-American voters who we need to get bring back into it's, our camp. In fact, it's
0: more persuasive to white liberals than most yes. African-American voters. Yes, because um, they
1: understand that, and this is part of our next topic, they understand that racism is structural and is much bigger than just Donald Trump's tweets.
0: Well, right. and, on, and on that note, you know, the other important thing to note here is we're having this conversation. You know, there have been a series of very horrific instances of racist violence and discrimination over the last several weeks. Um, we're now in the third day of protests in Minneapolis over the murder of George Floyd, a black man who died after he was pinned down and suffocated by police while he begged for his life. Um, I would highly recommend uh, listening to Akilah Hughes talk about this on Wednesday's episode of What a Day. It's very powerful. Um The officers have been fired, but not charged with anything yet. On Tuesday, Biden called for a civil rights investigation into the killing, which he said was, quote, part of an ingrained systemic cycle of injustice that still exists, where black lives are under threat every single day. Um, Later, Trump tweeted out a call for an expedited investigation, but didn't mention systemic racism. To me, the way Biden handles this is far more important than how he deals with his breakfast club comments. What do you think?
1: I think that's right. I think this is a very important conversation to have. And it's a very different one than we normally have. I think it has to be one that's very honest, which is most of the time in the context of PodSafe America, we talk about these things, we talk about them in terms of how winning the election will change things, right? Where, you know, you're concerned about whether the ACA is around, or whether more Americans should get access to health care, or whether we're going to stop destroying the planet, try something different, and electing Joe Biden and Democrats to the Senate, Democrats to the House, up and down the ballot. All of that is a solution to those problems. That we should, like, no one should be naive. No white liberal should suggest that somehow winning this this election is going to fundamentally change the dynamics that are at play here, right? Between the racism we saw in Central Park. The, obviously, the, the police violence that has plagued our communities for a very long time that we're only paying more attention to now because of smartphone videos are showing it. It's not going to change that. Will Joe Biden do a much better job of trying to address both the root causes and some of the behaviors that lead to this? One hundred percent. Even the the steps, you know, the steps that were taking the Obama administration around um, police violence against um, minority citizens were, you know, I have no doubt not enough and later than they should have been. But even those steps were undone by Jeff Sessions and Donald Trump in the first few days. And Joe Biden would, you know, I believe, put those in and go beyond it. And I think he has to have um, a very specific plan for it. And I know he's talked about a bunch of this stuff during the primary and we'll, and should talk about it again now. But this is, um, you know, this is the, this is the country in the world in which we live in. And I think it's really important for folks like us to Listen to Akila to read some of the things that Brittany and a lot of other people have said about this, and try to understand the right way for white liberals to respond to this. That fully understands the the fear and despair and grief that comes from this from the African American community. And I think a lot that really needs to be thought about is the sharing of these videos that Akila talked about that you would never share in any other context and. We don't think about that enough um, because it, I think people share them and they think, you know, despite maybe some subconscious sense of showing the world that they are woke, it's that we want the world to know this happens. But as Akilah points out just so passionately and powerfully in her remarks, that's not what's changing things, right? And you have to think about who is here on the other end. And it's impossible to put ourselves in those shoes. But I think about the comments from Christian Cooper in The New York Times where he, you know, he is the person who was in Central Park as a birdwatcher and got in this altercation with a woman about um, her dog being off the leash. And he talked about how he his passion is birdwatching and that he has to think every day that he has chosen a hobby that has him crawling through the bushes with a metal object in his hands. And that if he comes out from behind the bush in the wrong way or at the wrong time, his life is at risk. And that is something that is much bigger than this election or anything else and it is like the root it is and it goes beyond any of these videos it is the fundamental reality that a huge portion of americans are living in and addressing that is bigger than tweets and it's bigger than everything else we're talking about here
0: well and i mean back to our earlier conversation about you know sort of uh, needing a president who can help the country grieve during a time like this right there is Biden, of course, needs plans for this, and he'll have plans, and I don't doubt that he will, and he'll say the right things, and he'll um, and he'll have the right kind of plans to address this, hopefully. But more important than that, maybe even more important than that, is speaking about it in an honest way and showing that he gets it, that he gets at the core what this is really about. That he, you know, that, I mean, we have now seen protests in Minneapolis over the last couple of days. There were protests here in L.A. about this. This could continue. And as the country is sort of going through this turmoil, and especially as the black community is um, sort of demanding (laughs) rightfully that people understand what they have been going through and fearing for so long in this country, we need to have a president. We need to have leaders who show that they understand that and that they can help heal the country and help find justice. And that is not, like I said, that is more than just plans. (laughs) That is constantly talking about this, making this part of your message, making this part of the everyday discussions you have, not siphoning it off so that you're only talking about it when something pops up in the news, but that you're talking about it through this whole campaign. And, um, you know, it like it's it's just getting the message out there. It's like what we've been talking about with everything else. And so I do think that's that's something that the Biden campaign needs to be focused on. One last question on this. Do you think any of this will impact Biden's VP selection? Should it?
1: I don't know. Obviously, none of us know. And it's always the always important stipulation in discussion about rumors reporting around VPs is in almost every in every case, the people who talk don't know and people who know don't talk. So, right. you know, you see you hear reporting about, you know, Biden, Biden's down to these two people or this person, every favorite. No one no one actually knows. And I actually, frankly, think Joe Biden. Does not know right now who his shortlist is because he said uh, last night at a fundraiser he would probably make a decision around August 1. Right. And so, if you just based on schedule, it's unlikely that the vetting and other processes and certainly the interviews have happened yet. I don't know whether this will have an impact on it. Um, You know, polling to the extent we've seen it shows that it's not really clear. You know, some polling suggests that some people may add more to the ticket. There's a story out today that. Some polling that Stan Greenberg a Democratic pollster did says that Elizabeth Warren would be the best option I've seen polling that says it doesn't make a huge difference. I think the the question will be beyond all of the you know the the specifics of these individual things is like what is the impact of a sort of a larger meta conversation in our politics about Joe Biden specifically not picking a woman of color, yeah. Right, where you have very clearly qualified people in those positions to do it, right? Like you, it's it's not an abstract question. It is someone like Kamala Harris or Stacey Abrams who are on the quote unquote rumored shortlist, right? So you're picking someone other than them. What even if right now polling shows that people don't have strong feelings one way or the other or ambivalent or it all comes out on the wash in terms of who people pick, what is the impact? Of that meta conversation, and one that will certainly be weaponized by the Trump campaign, right, and, and other disinformation outlets to try to deal with the um, problem that, did you point out, that Joe Biden has is doing less well as of right now than previous Democratic nominees have done.
0: And you know, it is complicated. You know, you mentioned the the political story about Stan Greenberg's polling, which pointed to Warren as the best option. Um, Morning Consult did a poll this week that found Warren would have the biggest net positive impact on Biden's candidacy among all voters, but particularly among black voters and young voters, more so than Kamala Harris or Stacey Abrams, though it's fairly close with black voters. Um, And, you know, also we have to recognize that Elizabeth Warren's name ID, name identification is greater than Kamala Harris or Stacey Abrams, especially Stacey Abrams. Um, But so, you know, first you have to understand, like... We don't know for sure that picking a woman of color in this scenario when you have Elizabeth Warren would attract more voters of color to the ticket. We just don't know that uh, as we're sitting here today just being pundits. Um, I will say of all of the uh, potential picks, you know, Politico has a story this week quoting black activists who don't want to see Amy Klobuchar as, as the pick. Um, and in The Washington Post, Jonathan Capehart points to a 2019 headline from their paper that read... As a prosecutor in heavily white Minnesota, Amy Klobuchar declined to go after police involved in fatal encounters with black men. I do think with this happening in Minneapolis right now, the fact that Amy Klobuchar was the Hennepin County attorney for a long time, um, that is obviously going to raise some questions about her as a potential pick for, uh, or could raise a lot of questions for her as a potential pick among a lot of voters of color. So I think it's unclear the effect it has on Warren versus Harris versus Abrams. But I, I do wonder if it does have some effect on Amy Klobuchar.
1: I mean, I just, this is my guess, but it's an educated guess just based on having known and worked with Joe Biden for a long time is his first and foremost test is going to be, are they ready? Which I think everyone who was on the rumor shortlist passes that test yeah. easily, right? That they could step because just for, even if you didn't have a presidential nominee who was Nearing eighty in a time of pandemic, you need to have someone who can step into the role. Yep. And I think the second and one which closely related is who is the best governing partner, right? And that is going to take precedence over the politics of it with him. For just he's been vice president, he knows how important it is to have someone you can work with. You know, the relationship with Barack Obama was so critical to him and his experience there and the contribution they were able to make to the country. And he's been around long enough to see how that works when they get along. Yeah. And when they don't get along, right? right. And, but this is an election. It is the most important election in history. The politics will matter some. I think it'll be secondary. But these are going to be close calls where people are going to look at all of these things. And there will be no obvious choice. And you're going to have to make a gut because it's a It's not a thing you can know in advance. Right? Polling is not going to tell you who the right political choice is. It'll be how that choice is received. It'll be how that person performs on the campaign trail and how that person performs at the conventions and at the debate with Mike Pence.
0: Yeah. Presumably Mike
1: Pence is allowed to attend.
0: (laughs) All it can do is guide you. uh, Just ask John McCain. Um, All right. When we come back, um, we'll have my conversation with Paul Tews from Organizing Together 2020. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first, connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. I am joined today by the man who ran Iowa for the Obama campaign in 2008 and is now the head of Organizing Together 2020, the legendary Paul Tooze. Welcome to the pod.
2: Well, I'm very excited to be with you. I I think I did this once before with you guys back when Tommy was doing an Iowa series. And it seems about every four years, I'm popular for about two weeks when people start talking about Iowa. So it's good to be not just talking about Iowa.
0: That's why we thought we'd bring you back. We don't want to
2: pigeonhole you like
0: that. Yeah. Thank
2: you. Thank you so much. I do appreciate that.
0: (laughs) Um. So I want to dig into organizing, but first I want to get your perspective on the overall state of the race. Where do you think things stand right now? What are Biden's biggest challenges, and what are Trump's biggest challenges? Thirty thousand foot view here.
2: Thirty thousand foot. Well, I listen. I'm optimistic, and I think uh, you know about our chances. I, and I do think people should be optimistic. Um, you know, I think this is this is going to be an election that's obviously a referendum on Trump. And I think, you know, from all the polling you see, and you know, and just in conversations, you know, people aren't satisfied. They're not happy. They're, you know, they're, um, they want to make a different choice. Um, so I, you know, I feel optimistic. I do think, you know, it's just incumbent upon, and you know, apropos to this conversation, that people do their part. You know, this isn't, you know, I think a lot of people you know, sit around and say, hey, let's wait for this Biden campaign to get going. Let's get moving. Um, you know, Biden's actually probably further ahead than where Obama was in 08. Um, uh, you know, we didn't start really getting going till July, August um, in the general. Um, so, I, you know, I think he's further ahead there. You know, but I, I think it's, it's incumbent upon all of us and, and what we can do to affect this election. You know, that's really what organizing's about. Um, You know, that's where people come in on a day to day basis, talking to their neighbors, talking to their friends, um, you know, and not being afraid to have that conversation and not being afraid to have an opinion. And so, you know, I I feel I actually do feel optimistic, um, you know, about our chances, not only uh, with Biden, but, you know, for Democrats as a whole. And, uh, you know, it's just a function of working hard and working from the heart and, and getting out there and communicating with people and listening to people.
0: Well, let's talk about that. You know, a lot of our listeners are all signed up, ready to organize. Yeah, it's But I think there's some other people. It's great. But I think there's some other people out there who are thinking, all right, I'll vote. But, you know, Biden won the primary with the smallest field organization of anyone in the race. So maybe it doesn't make that much of a difference. What do you say to that? Why is field, why is organizing so important?
2: Well, I think you can ask Al Gore when he lost by, what, 320 votes. You can ask... uh, Uh, you know, Hillary Clinton when she lost and, you know, I think it was collective 80,000 votes in three States. You know, every vote matters. It really does. And um, you know, organizing is important because I, I still believe, and I think most people um, should believe this, that politics is still about people. You know, it's, it's, it's still about uh, human interaction. It's still about um, how we treat, how we treat one another. Um, And I think if, if you care about your community, if you care about your country, um, anyone can be involved in politics and everyone should be involved. Um, you know, no matter what your opinions are, um, uh, you know, uh, this country needs that, your community needs that, and that should be your motivation. You know, I think most Americans do care about what's going on in their communities, what's going on in their neighborhoods, what's going on in their country. And um, Um, you know, being involved in, in, uh, political campaigns and volunteering and, um, you know, it's a good feeling. Um, you know, I, I just have so many great memories of every campaign office I've ever walked in and you see, you know, volunteers coming in and out and they feel good. They feel good about their role. They feel good about the effort they're making on behalf of the things they care about. Um, and I, you know, and I think that's just healthy for a democracy, healthy for us as a country when individual citizens just feel great about their role. And, you know, again, every vote matters and um, every vote matters. And, you know, one volunteer hour here or two volunteer hours there can be the difference. And oftentimes it has been the difference. So, um, you know, for the sake of your heart, go out and, or, you know, get involved. And for the sake of your country and for the sake of talking to voters, get involved.
0: I mean, you know, that certainly was the case in 2008. We always tell the story, but, you know, you were running Iowa. I was in Chicago and there were times in the summer of 2007 and the fall of 2007 where the national media narrative was Obama's behind. Hillary's going to win. Obama has no chance. And we were all pretty down in the Chicago headquarters. And then yeah, you, yeah, you'd it come out to, to, to Iowa, to. you'd step into that. It was <laughs> okay. tough, right? No. <laughs> and you'd step into that Des Moines office or one of the offices or one of the field offices in all the, all the different counties in Iowa. And you'd feel this energy and enthusiasm that was just electric. And it made you feel better about the race. Um, because I think when you're on the ground talking to people doing that work it's such a different experience than sitting at a desk, reading tweets, reading the news, looking at the polls, all that bullshit. It really is. It, it sort of, it does something to you.
2: Yeah, no, I listen, and and that's the thing. You know, I think, you know, I think especially, you know, even this is now 12 years later, you know, when, I mean, boy, you see a new poll every five minutes, it seems, you know, that, that people can affect change right in front of them. That, you know, obviously there's a bigger picture, but, you know, I think most people want to know that what they're doing is making a difference. And that's very local. You know, um, all politics are local. And, you know, your ability to affect change happens neighbor by neighbor, friend by friend, community by community. And, you know, I think that's the attitude people have to have um, in order to, you know, in order, one, to satisfy their own hearts in why they're doing this, and two, to affect change. yeah. Um, you know, worry about and, and think about and focus on the things that are right in front of you.
0: Uh, let's talk about organizing together 2020. You guys set sure. this up before the primary was over to make sure that whoever won the nomination would have an organizing staff ready to hit the ground running. Um, how was this informed by 2016?
2: Yeah, so it was created, uh, you know, organizing 2020 was really created by, um, you know, a, a few uh uh, national unions, NEA, SCIU and asked me and then they went and through the Strategic Victory Fund. Um, you know, it was it was kind of this idea that, you know, that the number one challenge of, of organizing is time. Uh, you know, it always is, you know, it's it's decided, you know, I think, you know, back to oh eight where Obama got good um and nobody really talks about this is, you know, we had to run a campaign in 50 states before the general election uh we had time to you know train volunteers work with volunteers uh get people energized get people organized so it's a function of time so you know our whole mission here was you know we wanted to uh get organized early number 1 uh in these states um uh you know get organizers trained up get volunteers give volunteers a home give them something to do um, uh And then third is, you know, to kind of create a little unity out there. You know, I think we have organizers from 13 different presidential campaigns, Uh, you know, as they, uh, you know, came off of uh, uh, their own campaigns, you know, we hired them up and and put them to work, um, you know, to develop some continuity, Um, you know, so listen, it's, it's an idea, you know, borne out by these unions that, you know, who (laughs) know organizing better than anybody. Uh, uh, that we, get, we just got to get ready and get going. And, and the general election will happen. You know, Biden's in a good place. They're not, you know, they're probably ahead of the curve. They're not behind. And we just want people to be ready and give them something to do. So that's what we're doing.
0: So you've always been someone who, you know, loves to send organizers out to knock on doors, to make phone calls. You believe in the team spirit of organizing, doing it side by side with other people. How are you thinking about ways to capture that spirit if we have to do much of this campaign from home because of the pandemic.
2: Well, yeah. Listen, I still think it's community.
0: You know, it's still, uh,
2: you know, campaigns are community. You would just have to be a little more creative with things like Zoom and and um, you know virtual offices and you know and and getting people uh, uh, together as best they can in this situation. Um, you know, I think some of the the you know it's interesting when I first started in politics. You know uh, boy, that was a long time ago, John, um, you know, uh, <laughs> five years ago, three years ago, no, is, you know, back then, um, uh, you know, the phone call, uh, the phone was your weapon. You know, we, we would set up phone banks and that was your way to communicate with voters. So in a way, while technology has advanced so much, I still think there's a lot of ways to talk to voters, you know, whether it be through a phone call, whether it be through text message, Text messaging, you know, a lot of people communicate through Facebook, and and um, you know where we you create content and they go out and put their own personal touch on it, and you know, so a volunteer, there's still a lot of things you can do uh, to affect change, um, um, and so you know, we've built out tools and platforms around all those things, um, but it's still about community and it's still about getting involved and along the way, you meet a few people and you enjoy your time. It's, it's an invigorating yeah. experience, I mean, as you know, as you can attest to.
0: I, I sure can. Um, you know, we hear from a lot of people, we're doing this adopt-a-state program, people are adopting one of the six battleground states, and, you know, a, a lot of people say they're, they're concerned about volunteering outside of their communities and maybe being perceived as an outsider. How do people avoid that if you're sort of calling into or or reaching into another state
2: i think a couple things i'd say one is always be respectful um you know um always be respectful to the voter you're talking to um um even and and respect starts with listening um you know just listen to people i think we need more of that in our politics not less and um you know i think you know People across the country, you know, they have different stories to tell, you know. But in the, there's a theme that runs through it. They care about a lot of the same things: family and and uh, you know their community and jobs and and you know uh, their own security. But you know, so start with start with the proposition of respect. Listen, and don't be afraid to tell your own story. You know, don't read from talking points. Tell your own story. Why do you care? Why are you taking time to do this? Um. And if you say it in a respectful way, uh, I think people listen I do um, uh, and that's important so you know every voice matters. Uh, this is a country we're not a collection of of uh, fifty states and thousands of communities you know we're one country and so I think people should feel empowered to you know whether you're from California or New York or Vermont or Wyoming to make a difference and they can
0: so One of Biden's biggest challenges is getting young people out to vote, especially young people of color. The pandemic makes this even harder. Uh, You know, some college kids may not even be on campus this fall. How can we organize in a way that gets young people excited to actively participate in this election and, and not be bystanders?
2: Listen, it starts with young people talking to young people. Um, I think that, um, you know, sending me. Maybe you could do it. Sending me in to talk to young people. Boy, <laughs> uh, but it, you know, it's 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 that. I'm,
0: a, I'm I, on the edge of this. Yeah, point.
2: right. Uh, I, I think, <laughs> but but it, it is like I, I think it's the idea that you know, um, this next generation uh, and le and and leaders in there and people that want to be leaders in there need to take it upon themselves uh, to realize what's at stake in this election uh, to get their fellow uh, citizens you know younger citizens engaged uh and active um you know and i think also you know there's there's onus on biden too to speak to those issues um and i'm sure he will um um you know so i think it starts with those two propositions i think it's it's got to be young people talking to young people about what's at stake and then you know biden at some point And and I know he's already done this, um, you know, really speaking to what they care about because that'll get them, you know.
0: Yeah. Last question for you that I've been asking people. uh, What's keeping you up at night about this election? And you can't say everything.
2: (laughs) Um, I think participation is going to be the biggest thing. Um, You know, and I think, you know, at Organizing Together 2020, what we're trying to do now is you know across these states um fortunately in our states um they're um um you know I th- they're all have pretty good vote by mail rules but is giving you know letting people know early um you know what their options are in voting um guiding them through the process uh, you know folks like you and me and probably most of your listeners think about politics and campaigns 365 days a year uh normal yeah you know, <laughs> uh the normal american doesn't we're not normal well, yeah the yeah. normal american doesn't <laughs> you know they may think about it 3 days before the election and maybe it's too late so i think these phone calls and this volunteering that you're doing um is um is important be- to educate people about their options and keep it in the front of their mind about uh you know what are my voting options uh um so that that is what keeps me up at night is that um you know Will our traditional folks show up? Will there be confusion in the process? Um, and are we ready to handle that confusion?
0: Paul toos organizing together 2020. Uh, really looking forward to working with you guys yeah. hey, on, hey, this, can I, uh, on this initiative. Can I, and can I
2: give a shout out? You sure can. Okay, and you got to put this on the air. So will. uh, Ashley Williams is our training director. Uh, she's she's uh-huh. a great training director. She's going to be guiding everybody through this uh she's a big fan of uh your guys uh listens all the time so ashley williams will be handling all the training and she's probably one of the best in the country so uh, people can feel good that uh, when they get trained through us uh that they're going to be in good hands
0: another reason to sign up ashley williams will be leading the training she's one of the best in the business you heard it here first uh twos good talking to you man take care
2: thanks john say hi to the boys
0: Thanks to Paul Tews for joining us today. And uh, everyone have a great weekend. We'll talk to you next week. Bye, everyone. Pod Save America is a product of Cricket Media. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our assistant producer is Jordan Waller. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to Tanya Sominator, Katie Long, Roman Papa Dimitriou, Caroline Reston, and Elisa Gutierrez for production support. And to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Narmel Konian, Yale Freed, and Milo Kim, who film and upload these episodes as videos every week. You can live out your Master Chef dream when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel.